0: okay well hi welcome and welcome back i'm cassie and i'm tiffany and this is happy hour gets weird a one and done episode and this episode is kind of special i think because Uh recently a producer from the hln network reached out to us and asked if we wanted to watch the season three premiere of forensic files two before it airs on february 27th and of course we said yes very cool Yeah, Uh, so we're not going to give away any spoilers, but I will say that it's a very good episode. It's very interesting. Forensic Files and Forensic Files 2 is always interesting. Mm -hmm. And there's something kind of special to us about the first episode.
1: Yeah, kind of uh, a little bit local. Is that giving away too
0: much? I don't think so. Okay. I don't don't think so. I think that's just the right amount of teasing.
1: You got to watch it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, watch it. It premieres on the 27th. It's season three premiere of Forensic Files 2. And um, so I thought, okay, well, since we're talking Forensic Files, it's kind of like the OG of true crime shows. I feel like it's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to tell you a couple, a few of my favorite Forensic Files episodes, ones that really stuck out to me. Or stuck with me, I guess, would be better. All right. But are you ready?
1: I am so ready.
0: All right. So we're going to start with Last Will. And it was season seven, episode 42. Oh, um, I, I'm i actually not really drinking anything special. I totally am, like, excited to talk about Forensic Files. I forgot. <laughs> um, I'm just drinking a doctored up mike's hard lemonade seltzer i i saw this new brand and i thought it was looked yummy i like mike's original Mm -hmm. but for me it has too much sugar um so this is a seltzer and while we're on the subject of seltzer well i'm on the subject of seltzer um what is that um fresca
1: fresca is a soda
0: Fresca is one of my favorite sodas, and they're coming out with a boozy version of Fresca.
1: Ooh, I'm very excited.
0: Me too. I like to put Fresca in my Palomas.
1: Yeah, Fresca's amazing.
0: And then also, what's that lemonade, that natural naked lemonade, or it has orange juice, pure? Oh my gosh. You, They have the orange juice. They're like pretty popular orange juice. They have like raspberry, lemonade, strawberry. Like Simply Lemonade? Yes.
1: Great radio. A plus. (laughs) Top notch reporting. What? Are they making boozy versions of that?
0: Absolutely. 100%.
1: I hope it comes in a gallon size jug still. That's amazing.
0: We use those as chasers anyway. So it's like once they make those, it's over for us.
1: Game over. (laughs) Um, Speaking of Mike's Hard Lemonade, which, first of all, this is a one and done, so the cocktails are supposed to be, you know, come in a can,
0: period. Yeah, yeah.
1: But um, the other day I was at the gas station, and a dude was buying a Mike's Hard Lemonade at, like, 2 p.m. Cheers to you, sir. And the woman at the, that was checking him out, the cashier, said that she likes to mix Hennessy with her Mike's Hard Lemonade, and it tastes like a Long Island iced tea. What? So there's your gas station cocktail tip of the day, which is a new segment that I am now creating.
0: I, I, I'm obsessed with gas station cocktail tip of the day segment. I'm obsessed. Yep. And we should keep an eye out at gas mm-hmm. stations, what people are buying together or kind of listen. And if you have a gas station cocktail, send it our way and we will share it on this segment.
1: And that can be as simple as a red vine in your beer for a straw. I don't care. Uh, yeah. Just send them our way. We're ready for them.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to try it, and I will I will come back for science. I'm going to try it, and I will come back and let the people know. Okay. All
1: right. All let's right. do this.
0: Without further ado, would it, it wouldn't be an episode if I didn't say that in a terrible mm-hmm. French accent. Mm-hmm. Let me take a sip of my little cocktail. Wet my whistle. Okay. So, last will was the title of the Forensic Files episode that I'm going to talk about. Season seven, episode 42. And this is the case of Sherry Smith. Sherry Smith didn't make it home from work May 31st, 1985. Her father found her running car at the end of the driveway next to the mailbox with the door ajar two days after sherry was abducted there was a phone call to the house guaranteeing her parents she was alive and well but he didn't ask for a ransom Hmm. yeah the and the police thought for sure this was a ransom kidnapping Mm -hmm. he didn't ask for one but he told them that they would be receiving a letter soon And as soon as he said that, police contacted the postmaster and for the next two days they dug through all the mail until they found an envelope addressed to the Smiths and inside was a handwritten note titled, Last Will and Testament. The two-page handwritten letter was written by Sherry herself and it contained heartbreaking quotes that no parent wants to read, such as, quote, please don't... Ever let this ruin your lives. Something will good, something good will come out of this. My thoughts will always be with you and in you. And it was kind of at that moment her parents knew that this was not good, that they were getting the last will and testament. So the sheriff sent the letter to South Carolina Crime Lab to do some forensics on it. Hopefully they'd get fingerprints, DNA, hair, anything. But the killer kept calling the family. He called them to taunt them, and he also told them to call off the search because there was um, a manhunt looking for Sherry. And he said on the phone, quote, Sherry is now a part of me. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, our souls are one now.
1: Okay, fuck you, no, they're not.
0: Yeah, like in the woman, Sherry's mother on the phone, Mrs. Smith, has nerves of uh, a, a, a of steel, nerves of an angel. She was so composed and kept it together because they needed to keep him on the phone as long as possible. Because back in the nineteen eighty five, they didn't. They needed fifteen minutes to trace the phone call.
1: Mm-hmm. This guy is so sick. This is yeah. so disturbing.
0: Yeah, he's an, a a monster. So the FBI surmised that Sherry was probably killed within hours of her abduction and the purpose of the phone calls was buying the killer time. They assumed that the killer had probably already disposed of Sherry's body and the more time that went by, forensic evidence was being degraded by the elements. And it turned out it was days before the killer eventually revealed the location of Sherry's body and just as the FBI suspected, any evidence that was left on her body by the killer had been destroyed by the elements. At this point, the FBI released a profile, a white male, mid to late 20s to late 30s, currently single, but probably had a failed marriage in his past. He was tech savvy because he used a voice disguiser, Mm -hmm. And he had knowledge of forensics based on how he kind of tried to delay the finding of Sherry's body and also um, measured he had taken with her body. He had um, it looked like he had covered her with her her head with duct tape and they concluded that she had most likely died from suffocation. But he removed that. God, I know he removed the duct tape to take any evidence that could have come off him that would get stuck to the sticky side. So they figured he had some kind of knowledge of forensics. He'd probably lost some weight in the last few days, weeks or so. He would seem agitated. um, Most likely wouldn't be shaving per usual drinking heavily. And he'd be very eager to talk about the kidnapping and murder. And he would also have a history of committing sex crimes. This killer kept calling the family, which is such a hellscape for this family. And he actually called them on the night of Sherry Smith's funeral to tell the family exactly how he killed her. Evil. Yeah. He, a uh, absolute monster. So a few weeks after the funeral goes by with no calls and they are you know, hoping that they could start to heal from this and process this, also hoping for some kind of justice. But he called them after a few weeks, but he didn't want to talk about Cher anymore. He mentioned nine-year-old Deborah Helmick, and she was abducted about 20-something miles away from where Sherry Smith used to live. And she was taken from her front yard while her father was inside the trailer. And um, he asked a bunch of questions about it, and then he gave them directions to where he had hid the body, her body. Oh my God. And they gave all of that to the police. They were actually recording the call, but still they weren't on the phone long enough to trace the call. So at this point, unable to trace calls, the only evidence they had was Sherry's last will and testament. And it was being analyzed by forensic document examiner, Mickey Dawson. He used increased humidity and then placed the pages on a brass plate and then, um, electrified it. And then he put fingerprint dust on top of that. And it kind of brought any imprints that were on that paper, Um, to life because what it was it was like a legal pad Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you know old school legal pads you write on one page and then you rip it off and there's kind of an imprint left of what you wrote
1: yeah I'm pretty sure I saw an episode of murder she wrote where she figured out somebody's phone number doing this
0: yes exactly so they found a grocery list a list of bills that needed to be paid and a phone number to call in the case of an emergency Now, it was just a partial phone number, but it had an area code, a prefix, and three out of the last four digits. So they were almost there. The FBI plugged in digits until they found a valid phone number, and they called the number, and a man answered, and they asked him if he had connections to South Carolina. And he said, well, yes, in fact, my mother and father, the Shepherds, live in South Carolina. And they happened to live 15 miles from Sherry Smith's parents. So Ellis Shepard, the man who actually lived in South Carolina, was interviewed by the FBI. And he said, I was on vacation at the time of the abduction. I was actually gone for six weeks. And um, they obviously checked his alibi out and it was confirmed he was in fact gone. And there was no way that he could have committed this horrible, horrible crime. And then they played Ellis a recording of the killer's voice. And Ellis said, quote, that dirty son of a bitch. He said, that is Larry Jean Bell. I hired him to house it for me while I was away on vacation with my wife. So this led to further investigation of the shepherd's home and they found multiple types of dna evidence they found hair i believe they found some kind of fluid Uh, bell was arrested and he was charged um and he was brought to trial and the jury only took 47 minutes to find larry Jean guilty of kidnapping and first degree murder and he was sentenced to death by electric chair and then in a separate trial to follow he was also found guilty of kidnapping and the murder of deborah helmick and the jury came back with the same exact verdict death by electric chair and then 10 years later larry Jean was the last man to die in south carolina's electric chair wow yeah
1: thank god for that sleuthing
0: that all from imprints on a legal pad that's amazing yeah
1: police work like that's incredible i mean i know i that's what forensic files is all about but i mean shit that little piece of paper it really made the case they would have had nowhere to go
0: they had nothing they had nothing except for that piece of paper
1: and it really feels like if he hadn't been caught then he would have been a serial killer
0: Oh, they, the FBI said they had an agent on the show and during his interview, he said he was absolutely on his way to becoming a serial killer. It was only a matter of time.
1: God, thank God they caught that piece of shit. I hope the families were able to
0: find a little bit of closure there. I know. I just, it's so scary that monsters like that are just like lurking, looking for an opportunity.
1: And and house sitting. I I mean... <laughs> I mean, that's weird.
0: I know. I know. I just... Oh, my gosh. I'm so... I mean, if it wasn't for the house-sitting, they would have probably never found him. And he made calls from their house to the Smiths' home. He used their home phone, and they checked phone records. And it's just... It's so crazy.
1: Why didn't he use a fake name when he was house-sitting?
0: I don't know. I, I...
1: I mean, thank God he didn't, but it's like he does all these other fucking horrible things. Like, he's a total piece of shit, and then he's totally honest when he takes his house-sitting job.
0: I know. And, yeah, he's...
1: I mean, we don't need to get into it, but he's a fucking evil piece of shit and an idiot. Good riddance.
0: Goodbye. Bye. Okay, so the next one, it was titled Shell Game, and it was season 11, episode 25. This case starts with a blazing house fire in Tennessee. Firefighters, assuming the owners, Danny Vine and Della Thornton were gone because Danny's truck wasn't in the driveway, they left the scene and let the structure burn itself out. Oh. Which, <laughs> um, I don't, I'm not a firefighter, but seems questionable to me, but...
1: I'm assuming there was some checking, and then they realized that there was no sound coming from the house, so.
0: Yeah, I think, well, first it was a rural, uh, rural, I cannot say that word.
1: Rural rural. rural. rural?
0: I can't, my mouth is just like not going to happen ever. Rural? Rural. Rural? rural? Mm-hmm. Country? It was, it, yes, it was out in the country, so there wasn't any, <laughs> they <thing> to- <laughs> They didn't have any fear that it was going to burn anything, uh, any yeah. other structures down. It was mm-hmm. just kind of out by itself. And then the truck was gone. Danny's truck was gone. And then Della's car was in the driveway with the keys in the ignition. And they just assumed that she had driven up, saw the fire, jumped in Danny's truck, and then they went, got to safety. Um, However, sadly, when Danny's family started to go through the rubble, they discovered remains of two people on what <gasps> what would have been where the couch was. Oh no. Yes. The remains burned mostly to dust and ashes.
1: Whoa. This was a hot fire.
0: Yes. It was blazing. The only thing left out of um, the remains was a skull and teeth and um they they were just barely they, there was enough to send to a forensic anthropologist at the University of Tennessee and he began an investigation and using dental records determined that in fact the remains were of Danny and Della
1: both of them
0: yes both of them
1: oh wow okay
0: Danny was a professional scuba diver
1: <gasps> how fun
0: Mostly diving for mussels in the Tennessee waters and those mussels were used to make mother of pearl jewelry. Oh. Mm-hmm. And Della was described, described as a beautiful blonde and she worked at a local factory. And they were just months away from their wedding. Also, in the wreckage was the burned remains of their sweet, sweet Rottweiler puppy. Oh, I know. Man. Hud- and it was huddled in the corner, like you would assume that someone, a person or an animal trapped in a, in a burning building would kind of huddle in a corner. So it was strange to investigators that Danny and Della were on what they they appeared to have been sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. and actually one of the investigators like you don't pop a bowl of popcorn and watch your house burn down around you so this is either a murder or a murder suicide Mm -hmm. so specially trained arson dogs detected an accelerant and through testing it was determined to be gasoline almost 10 gallons of gasoline were poured throughout the house including the bodies of danny and Della. so this was for sure arson
1: That's a lot of gasoline.
0: It is a ton.
1: I don't even know how people expect to get away with arson because there's always an accelerant used and it's always discovered.
0: So my father-in-law is a retired fighter fighter, and we were, for some reason, we were in the car, just the two of us and me being who I am, I was like, um, so if an arsonist was going to get away with arson, how would he or she do that? Mm -hmm. And he basically said, it's almost impossible. They're so, fire arson investigators are so good at what they do. He's like, it's impossible to not find the accelerant used or any Mm -hmm. kind of device or any kind of bomb or, He Mm -hmm. said it's almost impossible to get away with arson.
1: You would have to, basically, the accelerant would have to be something that's naturally in the vicinity of where Mm -hmm. the fire is. Mm -hmm. And then you would have to go to Goodwill, buy a really, really old lamp, Mm -hmm. and just shred it and then plug it in. And then just watch the sparks fly, baby.
0: You would buy the lamp at Goodwill, and then you would go to a pet store and buy a mouse. Mm -hmm. And then you would have the mouse... But truth. you have to do
1: this all with cash and all wearing a disguise. Yeah. <laughs> no credit card. Why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we giving this advice of what to do?
0: Um, so he said, my father-in-law said, you could, you, could, if you could remain anonymous with an arson, but they would always find out that it was arson.
1: Even if you put peanut butter on the cord of the lamp so that the mouse would chew on it.
0: Yes. They would know. They would um, find – they would get a peanut butter sniffing dog.
1: They would find that rat.
0: They would find the – they would interrogate the mouse.
1: A rat's always a rat. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, okay, so William Bass, PhD, a forensic anthropologist, discovered a fragmented thirty-eight caliber, caliber bullet in Danny's skull and then in Della's. So mm-hmm. authorities were thinking maybe, like I said, murder-suicide, but –
1: Where's the truck?
0: Exactly. But they discovered that Danny owned a forty-five caliber handgun and not a thirty-eight. And Big Daddy Will said, we got a murder on our hands. So police found Danny's truck a couple of miles away on a deserted dirt country road with his trailer attached, but his trailer was empty. And at this point, Danny's friends told police the last time they saw Danny, he had a full trailer worth of $2,500 in muscle shells. Oh, shit. Yeah, and anybody who is anybody knows that a trailer full of muscle shells is a trailer full of cash.
1: I, I actually never knew that till this episode, but that's fascinating. I didn't know that there was such big money in muscles.
0: Yeah. Um, police, at that point, then noticed tracks that were backing up to the trailer and there was no other truck there and and all that kind of forensic work and stuff. So a little bit about... The muscle selling, buying, and diving industry. So Danny was a diver, but mostly a buyer of muscle shells. What he would do is he would buy from an independent diver, then sell to jewelry makers. So he was like a muscle middleman. Mm -hmm. And Tennessee muscle divers have sort of a reputation for being tough characters, physically tough because diving isn't an easy feat. It's freezing water. You have to dig around in mud. It's hard physical work. Mm -hmm. And at least in this case, the muscle diving business seemed to attract men with serious criminal histories.
1: No background checks. Exactly. You're like your own boss. So,
0: Exactly. Yes. Okay. So police canvassed known mussel buyers looking for anyone who sold mussels in the weeks after Danny and Della's murder. And when you sell shells, you must sell them within a few days of the dive because they are weighed by the pound. And when mussels are out of the water longer than a few days, they open up and release their water, making them less valuable per pound. It's called water weight.
1: I've heard of it. I've lived it.
0: Yes. (laughs) That's like this. Oh, it's water weight. (laughs) Yeah. Leave me out in the sun for a couple days. (laughs)
1: 37 beers later,
0: that's water weight. (laughs) Exactly. Pork chop in a can. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, is suspicious to buyers when the shells have opened and released their water weight because usually you sell them right away to get more money. It doesn't make sense. Also, when shells are sold they go through what they call a shaker and it basically shakes up the shells and separates them by size and it kind of gives you an estimate like if you have your own shaker you shake them yourself and it gives you an estimate of kind of what you're going to make or you bring them to a buyer and the buyer puts them through a shaker and then they determine how much they owe you Mm -hmm. well in when the shells go through a shaker the process causes chips on the outer shell So the shells in lost water weight and chips from a shaker pretty much indicates to a buyer, okay, these shells were probably most likely stolen.
1: Because they've been sitting around for too long. Yes. To to be um, in the hands of the original uh, procurer.
0: Yes. Okay. So police learned of a woman who had recently sold some shells that had not only lost their water weight, but had already been through a shaker. And she turned out to be the wife of local diver, Gary Bruce. And in this case, the bad guys comes in, come in threes. We have gargoyle Gary and his two brothers, Jerry Lee Bruce and Robert Bruce. And like I've always said, You can never trust anyone with two first names for a name. Mm
1: -hmm. They're just ready to become a serial killer. They're already there.
0: Exactly. It's just a good ground rule to live your life by.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So these three brothers were nothing but trouble, and they usually got out of it by intimidating witnesses. For example, once when a witness was being interviewed by police, the Butthole brothers blew up the building next door (gasps) What? as a warning. What? While the interview was taking place,
1: so the got gu- the the guy's facing the window, the cop's facing him, and he's trying to talk, and then he looks out the window and there's just an explosion in the background, and then the yeah. brothers are standing there, and they're like pointing at him, pointing at the building,
0: yeah, and one goes mm, thumb across yeah. the neck, and another one does a zip of the lips and swallows the key,
1: and then the other one just eats a grenade,
0: yes, I wish. <laughs>
1: Jesus talk about intimidation
0: I know but these guys weren't just bad news and petty criminals they were straight up evil one brother J.C. Bruce was convicted of raping and strangling a young girl thankfully when he thought he killed her she actually survived and testified against him and he was actually sent to prison but only to be pardoned by the fucking governor why a few years later and he was out he was out that's- like, I know. I, put, I knew this was going to make us rage. angry. I'm in a full rage. But I had to put it in there. Okay. So when police interviewed the Bruce brothers about Danny and Della's murder, their mother, Kathleen Bruce, provided her devil spawn an alibi. She said all of her sons were at home with her playing pool. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this put the case at a standstill. But then a few witnesses came forward. One woman said she was with Kathleen all night the night of the fire, and the brothers weren't there at all. She didn't see him once. And then a man from a gas station in town said he saw the brothers filling up two gas cans, and then when Gary went in to pay, he told the clerk there's going to be a hot time in Camden tonight. Hmm. But that still wasn't enough evidence to go to trial. Mm-hmm. But Big Daddy Will comes through again. He reexamined the bullet. And it turns out when Danny was shot, he fell forward. And the front part of his skull was the least burned part of his body. Mm -hmm. And the copper shell of the bullet has a, a 2,000 degrees burning point, which meant that it didn't melt. And there were still unique markings left on the casing to compare to another bullet shot from the murder weapon. But police needed to get their hands on it. And the Bruce brothers obviously denied owning a 38 caliber handgun. And that's when the third witness came forward. And it was a woman who said she was walking with gross Gary Bruce. And he pulled out a handgun and shot a couple rounds into a nearby tree. She said it looked a lot like a 38 caliber. She took him to the tree. And what do you fucking know? There was bullet holes in the tree. So they cut down the tree. And they removed the bullet with a hammer and a chisel, and they sent it off to Forensic, and the striations were a match. They matched. Gotcha, bitch. Perfectly. They matched perfectly. So it came out between the murder and the trial that Jerry, or Junkie Jerry, as I like to call him, Mm -hmm. asked Della out on a date and she not only said hell no she told him he'd never be half the man that danny was obviously yeah so i mean the police are like that's part of a motive but they believe the main motive was actually robbery Mm -hmm. but it was just kind of like icing on the cake for these gross bruce brothers to like you know get della back for bruising jerry's ego or whatever So, they're all arrested. They're awaiting trial. They're in prison. And fucking Gary Bruce escapes prison. What? Yeah. He peels back the chain link fence and squeezes out of the prison yard. He was on the run for 14 months.
1: Oh, my God.
0: So, they found him working in Nashville as a landscaper. He had a badly bleached mullet, the worst haircut I've ever seen. He... Honestly, I don't even know why he didn't leave Tennessee. He's stupid.
1: He's a fucking idiot like they all are.
0: Yeah. So they sent him back to prison and they all three eventually made it to trial. Each brother was convicted of first degree murder, arson, and firearms violations because they were all on parole. They were all like lifetime criminals. Yeah. Each of them got life in prison without parole, and they even went after Granny She-Devil Kathleen Bruce for providing a false alibi, which, booyah, I'm so glad they went after her. Yeah. And she got eight years in prison. And then the local police said that just by locking up three of the Bruce brothers and their mom, crime significantly lowered in their town. Wow. Four people had such a huge percentage of crime. Like, that's insane. Well, they were obviously
1: terrible people.
0: Yeah. They just terrorized that small town. I feel bad for the people. And also, rest in peace, Danny and Della and their sweet little yes. Rottweiler puppy. Like, it wasn't...
1: Yeah, that's awful.
0: Over $2,500. Like, it's...
1: Over nothing. Over yeah. Over nothing. Exactly. Yeah,
0: that's awful. So, um... So that was always uh, one of the episodes that stuck out to me. That's a
1: crazy story. I can it see why. It was so twisty. Yeah. It is.
0: So in our last story that I'm going to talk about today, the name is Shot of Vengeance. And this one is crazier than the first two. No way. Yes. If you can believe it, it's unbelievable. So season eight, episode nine. And this is the story of Janice Trohan. She was a nurse in Lafayette, Louisiana. It was 1994 and she was a single mother of two young kids. She began to have strange symptoms of an unknown illness. Mm -hmm. It started with pain when she moved her eyes and her primary doctor told her it was probably nothing more than sinus issues. Eventually, Janice made an appointment with her gynecologist. A pelvic exam was done along with blood work because her gynecologist noticed some swollen lymph nodes and suspected she had a virus of some kind. Mm -hmm. Imagine her shock when the test came back HIV positive and she was also pregnant. Wait, what? Yes. Okay. Yes. So... Janice, fearing her unborn child was HIV positive, made the tough choice to terminate the pregnancy. And Janice was a nurse. She was an RN, so she could have contracted HIV a, a number of ways. Working at the hospital, she could have contracted from one of her patients with AIDS, or she could have had contracted it from a former lover. You know, mm-hmm. either way is plausible. Her primary care provider, Dr. Richard Smith, shared his theories with hospital staff. Period, Janice was a slut. She slept around. She was always at the bar day and night bringing home strange men.
1: Wait, this is what he told her co workers?
0: Yeah, her primary care physician. Interesting diagnosis, right?
1: Also, isn't that confidential information? What is, what (laughs) the fuck?
0: I don't know. So they rounded up all of Janice's lovers over the past 10 years. I mean, can you imagine being a room? With all your lovers the past ten years, I've had Yikes. this nightmare.
1: I've had this nightmare.
0: <laughs> um, they were all tested, and they all came back negative.
1: How stressful for everybody!
0: I know, but Janice knew exactly how she contracted HIV. And sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. Are you ready for this? I'm literally
1: shot? on the edge of my seat. I'm not exa- I'm not joking.
0: Okay, so for the last ten years. Janice had been having an extramarital affair with none other than her primary care physician, Dr. Richard Schmidt. I hate him. Yeah, he's a, the devil. So actually, the devil's better than him. He is He's the worst. So the affair started when she was a budding nurse at the hospital. During orientation, she was attracted to how smart he was. He was a brilliant doctor. Both Dr. Schmidt and Janice were married at the time. Dr. Schmidt convinced Janice to divorce her current spouse and then they would be together and he would divorce his wife. Janice divorced her husband, but Dr. Schmidt put off leaving his current wife and years went by. Janice became pregnant with Dr. Schmidt's baby. She had the son, their son, and raised him. The doctor paid child support, but he never left his wife.
1: One of the kids that she had was his? Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Many times over the years, Janice became fed up with his lies and his bullshit, and she tried to end the relationship. He would threaten (sighs) her every time. He said he would post nude pics of her on the bulletin board at the hospital. He would tell the dean of the nursing school she plagiarized her work. He said, if you leave me, I'll make sure no man will ever want you. He even went so far as to threaten to kill her.
1: This is such terrible, terrible abuse. Oh, my God.
0: He followed her when she went out on dates, and he threatened the lives of her dates. He went to a man's home after she went on a date with him and threatened to kill him. So, oh Doctor, Sh- yeah, this
1: fucking nightmare.
0: I know. And Doctor Schmidt, you think, oh, this crazy doctor, whatever. Well, he was a prominent, brilliant doctor, beloved by his patients in the community. So she was very afraid that he would make good on his threats and nobody would believe her and she'd be ostracized. So Janice gave in to his demands. After a decade and tired of the secrecy and the sneaking around, Janice gave the doctor an ultimatum, leave your wife so we can be together or it's over for good. He still refused to leave his wife. So Janice ended it for the final time. Knowing Dr. Schmidt was somehow responsible for her contracting HIV, she went to the district attorney's office. He was skeptical, but he assigned a detective at the Lafayette Police Department to investigate. So while under his care as her primary provider, Janice would regularly receive B12 shots for lethargy. Janice told detectives that sometime after she ended the relationship, Dr. Schmidt called her in the middle of the night on August 4th and told her he needed to come over immediately. And within minutes, he was at her bedside with a B12 injection. He gave her the injection and then he was out the door, which wasn't usual because usually he tried to stay and talk her into getting back together. Janice said that the injection was so painful it radiated down her arm and she had never had pain with an injection like that before. And she knew this is when he did it. He had injected her with HIV and now they had to prove it. So police initially began the investigation to disprove her story. They didn't believe her. Janice had given blood a few months before the injection and at the time she was HIV negative. So having contracted it, the night in August, like she said, it did align with her story. They began examining Dr. Schmidt's phone records. And in fact, he had called Janice on the fourth at 10 30 PM. So they had to determine how he contaminated the syringe with HIV. So even as a doctor, you can't just go to a blood bank and have HIV blood samples given to you. Even if you did, the virus doesn't survive outside of the body for more than 12 hours, which meant that Dr. Schmidt had to draw the blood the same day he injected Janice. So they searched his records, which were meticulously kept by his staff nurses, and it turned out the blood draw records for August 1994 were missing. Dr. Schmidts da- in Dr. Schmidt's desk while they were searching, they found the nude photos of Janice that he threatened to expose. So there was another piece of the puzzle that turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. He did in fact have photos that he was talking about. Mm -hmm. They were about to leave his office when they noticed a locked storage room full of boxes. And at the very bottom of a stack of boxes, they found a box labeled Billing 1982. And at the very bottom of that box, they found the Blood Draw Record Notebook from 1994. Detectives looked at the last date recorded in the notebook, and it's fucking August 4th, 1994 the day that he had injected Janice in the middle of the night. All the names had a corresponding sticker with a lab tracking serial number, except for two Don McLennan. And next to his name, it said lavender stopper for Dr. S police went to see Don McLennan and asked if he was HIV positive. And he said, quote, HIV positive. Hell, I have full blown AIDS. He said he, never called dr schmidt for an appointment in fact dr schmidt called him to come in for blood work oh my god i mean the scheming the scheming so police turned to genetic genetic researcher michael metzger science daddy extraordinaire who genetically tested the viruses genetically testing the viruses would, was unprecedented at the time because once a virus enters a host it mutates so there could be no way to get a genetic match because mm-hmm. it's all it's all gonna be different. So Dr. Metzger used phylogenetic methods and basically it's mathematical models that could trace back the evolution of the virus to its origin. So Dr. Metzger looked at 30 blood samples from individuals infected with HOV, HIV in the Lafayette area, including, well, 30 people who had HIV donated blood samples, including Dawn and Janice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: 28 of those blood samples had mutated differently from one another, but two were nearly identical. And those two were that of Don McClellan and Janice Trehan. It was one in a million chance that Janice didn't contract the virus from Dawn.
1: God, some people are so
0: fucking smart. I'm, I'm telling you right now, I have a boner for science right now. So, okay, but wait, I'm sure you're thinking, uh, you said there were two patient names without lab stickers. And Mm -hmm. yes, I did. When Janice found out that she was HIV positive, she also found out that she was positive for hepatitis C. And it turns out Dr. fucking Schmidt straight from hell himself. He doubled down and he not only drew patient, he drew blood from a patient who was HIV positive or had AIDS. He also drew blood from a patient who was positive for hepatitis C just to make sure he really stuck it to Janice. Sorry, pardon the pun. So he gave her HIV also hepatitis C. So Dr. Dumbass was arrested, and he was charged with second-degree murder. He maintained his uh, innocence, of course, and his wife stuck by his side. As brilliant as Dr. Schmidt was, he didn't account for the genetic testing and sexy Dr. Metzger and the forensics that would eventually expose him for who he was. He was found guilty, and he was sentenced to get this. I've never heard this one. 50 years hard labor. I love it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, and detectives think that he kept that blood draw record as a fucking trophy. Like, For why sure. didn't he just burn it? Mm-hmm. He So he could take it out and look at it and remember what he did to Janice. And as much as I could find, as of 2015, Janice is happily remarried and living life to the fullest. She said that she, every day is a gift. Because she knows that Dr. Fucking Devil tried to give her a death sentence. That's one promise he kept. Mm -hmm. And every day is a gift for her. And it it seems by all accounts that I could find on social media without being too intrusive. She definitely was remarried. And she is trying to live her best life.
1: Good for her. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. Oh, that's a good ending. Yeah. Fuck that guy. I'm so happy for her yeah what a what a fighter and a survivor and a strong person
0: yeah yeah so I thought these are these are my favorite most memorable memorable forensic files so I just thought we could do a little tribute to forensic files I
1: could see why you love them they're great and what a good tribute
0: I know thank you so I hope you enjoyed it and until next time so don't forget to love yourself
1: lock your doors
0: and light some sage cheers to that cheers to that